Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. Earlier this month, we began our 16th season season uh, creating television shows in partnership with Ron Share Productions. 16 years, beginning in 2005 under the name Pheasants Forever Television, then changing in 2012 to The Flush, which is running today. And then uh, shortly after 2012, we added Rooster Tales, uh, which is on what used to be called Fox Sports and now is uh, Valley Sports um, channels in, in the Midwest. Um, but in particular, we're going to talk about the 2021 season of The Flush, airing on Outdoor Channel, being hosted once again by our favorite good friend, Travis Frank, host of The Flush television show and host of The Flush podcast. And uh, listeners, just call your attention to uh, airtimes for The Flush. So you can find this on the Outdoor Channel website, on the Flush website. So if you are you don't have a pencil in front of you, um, but if you do, Mondays, now all these times are going to be Eastern, Mondays at 10.30 a.m., Wednesdays at 6.30 a.m., Fridays at 5.30 a.m., and the money slot, Saturdays, 8.30 a.m., 7.30 a.m. Central. Get your weekend started with Travis Frank and the flush and without further ado host of the flush television show and podcast and a relatively new bird dog owner which mm-hmm. we've touched on before but that's where that's where we're going to start travis welcome back to to on the wing podcast how's daisy doing oh Let's my cut, goodness well cut right to it First off, I'll say you got to be careful with the whole favorite thing. You don't want to make Ron or Bill or Scott jealous. <laughs> but I, I do appreciate being on. I always loved talking bird hunting with you, Bob. So it's a real pleasure. Daisy's wrapped up right now. Um, I learned a, another valuable lesson in the always interesting uh, life of a bird dog owner. Um, I gave my dog stitches for the first time. And I'll just say that I learned a little bit there. Um hmm. And there was an expert brought in after the fact to make sure that I did <laughs> I did my job. But she's got a little wrap on one of her legs. The thing is, she's just like this. Um, she doesn't stop moving. And she's mm. always on the go. <laughs> and she found some barbed wire. And mm. unfortunately, it ripped uh, one of her legs open pretty bad. So um, I can now add uh, sutures to my list, which actually makes me feel pretty good about going into the field because uh, I, I did uh, stitch her back up. And if I run into that situation out in the field this fall, I'll be ready for it. Uh, you stitch her up with a staple gun or what'd you use? I don't want to, I, I don't want to get into too many details, but let's just say uh, my staple gun didn't work at the time. And I told my wife, I need your sewing kit. <laughs> and so I made oh. it happen. Well, and it happened at about 1145 at night when mm. everything else was closed and I had to make something happen. So mm. my wife told me afterwards, she goes, honestly, I'm, I'm a little bit impressed that you even attempted that. And I was like, well, you do what you got to do, right? And I said, "This is I, I'm thankful that you're okay with me doing this because mm-hmm. this is a reality when you're, you know, an hour away from a town out mm-hmm. in the field is you got to be ready to do what you need to do to potentially save your dog. How, how deep was the cut? It wasn't terrible. It wasn't, uh, it basically just ripped open uh, halfway down her leg near her okay. paw, just about two inches above the top of her paw. And it was just a flap of skin okay. that it peeled back about one inch by one inch. And uh, I do have a friend that's a vet. And so I sent her the photo afterwards and she brought it in and she, and she we, um, we went through and she showed me a little bit of the things that I sh- should have done different mm-hmm. and a couple of tools to add to my, uh, my first aid kit when I hit the field this fall, which is always, a, I think it's nice. I mean, 
to really be ready. And we can talk about this too, but the, the accidents that happen in the field happen mm. so quickly. And so it's kind of, it's kind of nice to have that uh, professional knowledge, uh, teach someone that can teach you what to do in case of an emergency. Yeah, you're, you're right on because we've all been in that situation it, and it only takes a split second where your dog's coming over barbed wire and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. and you, you know, your heart sinks not knowing exactly how bad it is when they're coming back. And, you know, I think most of us, when we hunt in pheasant country in particular, we've, our dogs have been running or had run-ins with barbed wire there's just so much of it even even on public lands you know mm-hmm. there, there's barbed wire especially i think about most of your waterfall production areas have barbed wire a lot of the times because they use cattle to manage some of the habitat and then you know the barbed wire is there and you know it, it, so to your point knowing what to do and being prepared. And that's a little bit of what we're going to talk about related to one of the episodes that um, um, had, uh, well, it it just brought home, I I think for you and for the, it will bring home for the viewers, um, the need to be prepared for your dog's sake when you're out Mm -hmm. in the field, especially, you know, like you mentioned, whether it's an hour or even, even closer, you know, sometimes, yeah, I've, I've told the story before. Like, it, no level of preparation would have helped me with with Izzy, my dog that died in the woods um, mm-hmm. through a ruptured carotid artery. But you know, I was 15 minutes from a vet, and um, you know, so distance isn't the critical piece. It's time. Yeah. And um, to that point, not to bring bring this episode down right out of the gates but i think it it bears um spending a little time on Mm -hmm. some sad news um the owner of ron share productions and also one of the hosts on the flush scott franzen and our viewers of the flush will know hank the yellow lab um in the prime of his life Mm -hmm. uh been on the show his entire life um passed away from from cancer here recently and at at five yep and again you know we're talking about the importance of time well on a different level like we just never know how much time we have with our with our pups and Mm -hmm. um unfortunately sometimes reminders like this um can be you you can look at it in, in a positive way from the perspective of at least we can all give a little extra scratch underneath the chin to the daisies, the eskies, the trammels, and the gitchies out there. Um, what what can you tell us about um, kind of the situation with Hank? Yeah, so um, it, it was probably about a month ago, Scott was noticing just some discomfort with Hank. Uh, and just just acting different. I think we all can look at our dogs and know that something is off and mm-hmm. uh, how they eat. Hank was his eating habits were starting to change. And I remember Scott and I were talking several times about Hank and what he's been what he was doing. And he goes, I'm just a little bit worried about him. And he was talking with his vet and and, and um, took took Hank in a couple times. And he actually had a trip planned to Montana and he came back early from the trip because Hank wasn't eating. He just wasn't mm-hmm. himself. Uh, it was a family trip that he had planned, but he just knew something wasn't right. And Scott and I kept texting back and forth about it. And <clears throat> he had taken Hank in and they, they did uh, an MRI and they found the cancer in, mm-hmm. in Hank. And it had, it was to a point where there was nothing that they could do. And so he had to make that decision. And Scott was, I think, devastated was probably mm-hmm. the word I would go with. Uh, it's just such a, a shock. I think, you know, I'm a new dog owner, but I am also a father. And I my heart breaks when I hear stories about lives ending or tragedies happening when mm-hmm. people are young. I think when you're older, you just have this. Well, you know, I I think they lived a good life or they, you know, they, I hope they lived a good life. And 
it's sad always, but mm-hmm. when somebody's young or even a dog is young, it's so unexpected. It's so tragic. And so they put the, they had to put Hank down they put him down the next day to just end the pain mm. uh, and suffering that he was going through. But it happened so quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say he noticed something a little bit different, wasn't as drastic uh, behavior wise, but it changed really quickly in the course of just a couple of weeks. He went from being, you know, a dog that loved to chase and and be part of the family to a dog that was you know, going into weird places and trying to cool down and staying in water and just wasn't partaking in any of the normal things that Hank would always do. And so, um, you know, it, it changed really quick. And we we did make a post on our on our social media pages. And Scott and I were talking the other day about it. And it just brings home the the um, I think the Upland community and Bob, you you probably agree with us too but just the the um the family that the upland community Mm -hmm. is and how everybody is so caring and Mm tight-knit uh just the amazing amount of the outpouring of messages that people sent to us to scott uh it just he wants people to know how much that meant to him he read all the messages with his kids and his wife and they cried together and they were just appreciative of it. So to anybody listening that maybe sent him a message, thank you, because it makes a difference and it helps with the healing. Um, you know, he, he and I, he and I talked yesterday about it again and he, um, he's just taking a little bit of time. It just happened so quick mm-hmm. you know? and it's just a reminder. Unfortunately, they did have a puppy, Millie, uh, the black lab uh, is one of Hank's daughters. And so she's a couple months old now and she's going to teach that man a lot. Come <laughs> season this fall. <laughs> and the journey continues. Yeah. I'll, I'll echo that. The, when Izzy died um, at a year and a half, the outpouring of support, uh, not only to me, but to my wife, Meredith, who, I've mentioned we've never been able to have kids and our pups are <laughs> anthropomorphized as children uh, as much as any dogs on the planet. Um, we were similarly devastated. And the the community that makes up Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever and then the larger community in, in this upland world was just so uh, gracious and, and thoughtful and caring um, in our loss. And it was, it was uplifting and, and read every single, I have, um, many of them still because they just moved us. So, um, in, you know, every year when kind of the anniversary of Izzy's passing, you know, you, you think about that and, and it's just a, an amazingly important reminder. Um, no matter if it's a dog or a person, a child, a father, like, Life is short. Yep. Um, take the time to uh, say I love you and uh, give a little scratch. Um, and sometimes that's that's the best best thing that can come out of a um, something as sad as this. So, so our Brilliant. best <clears throat> best to the friends and family and um, Hank. The good thing is in Hank's five years. Hank lived a hell of a good life, both mm-hmm. from a family perspective and um, being the star of a of a hunting oriented television television show, and have a lot of dogs would uh, love to emulate that. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. All it's right, a- so we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll try to bring bring the mood up a little bit, and as we do, we'll we'll transition with um, um, a thank you to. Our partners at South Dakota Tourism and South Dakota Game Fish and Parks create your pheasant hunting story in a state loaded with tradition and pheasants. Find public land maps and planning tools for a South Dakota adventure at huntthegreatest.com. And then also our partners the official ammunition of pheasants forever and quail forever and the presenting sponsor of the flush federal premium ammunition 
Here's a word from our friends at Federal. The flush. So fast, it hardly seems real. So vivid, the moment freezes in time before erupting in a blur of spurs and feathers. It's why we change the way upland loads are built with Prairie Storm. Exclusive flight control FlexWad technology and a mix of copper-plated lead and flight stopper pellets combine to create dense, deadly shot strings through any choke. Longer shots, more power, fewer missed birds. Only from Federal. All right, Travis. Turning up the dial on the mood, <laughs> the new season, the 2021 season, our 16th year together in television, uh, kicked off to start July. It, it always runs uh, third quarter and fourth quarter. The, the flush always runs third quarter and fourth quarter on Outdoor Channel. Uh, the very first episode, I've seen the um, all the chatter on social media when this one aired. It was a veterans hunt in South Dakota. And talking about moving people in a positive way, that show was really, really well received to kick off the season. Well, I appreciate you saying that. <clears throat> it's quite a bit different for me. I, I do almost exclusively public land hunts, adventure hunts. That's what I've grown up doing my whole life. And that's what I love to tell stories about on our TV show. And this one was not that at all. This one was about people and their stories. And um, really, it was Sam Daly is a man that has been a dog trainer, trained with Tom Dockin 30 years ago and uh, 20. I'm not even sure how long. I don't want to quote that, but it's been a while. (laughs) And he got a call uh, to go serve or to train dogs, I should say, in war Hmm. in Afghanistan and Iraq. And he accepted the call. And he went over and he trained labs, different dogs, different breeds, but specifically labs because of their abilities. Uh, and he trained them to lead soldiers on the front lines to sniff explosives, dangerous items, basically to save human lives over there. And so he did two tours over there. And when he came back, he, you know, life just didn't have the same. Uh, you know, these, mm. these simple things that we do here didn't have the same fulfillment to him. And he just, he was such a changed man after what he experienced. And then seeing how these dogs changed these soldiers lives. And when the, when the dogs, when the soldiers were done, they were pulled apart from their dogs and it was just devastating. So anyway, he started this organization called believe it, uh, believe and vet together mm. is one word. And now he trains dogs that help soldiers suffering from PTSD and other uh, challenges from their time in service. And the man's mission is incredible. But after going through this training program that he trains a specific dog for a specific soldier, could be something like, you know, they have night terrors and the dog is trained to wake this soldier up in the middle of the night, turn the light on, pull the sheets off, lick their face, wake them up so that when they wake up from this night tear where they're reliving a horror moment from war, they don't take it out on their wife laying next to them or something like that. Mm. I mean, it's these are real stories. And he takes uh, the uh, the vets to uh, a lodge in South Dakota, and I was fortunate to go with them. And the dogs, maybe they they know what a pheasant smells like. Maybe they don't, but Sam's <laughs> Sam's dogs certainly do. And they're amazing. And there were so many birds there, but really those soldiers then opened up to me mm-hmm. and shared their stories about their experience in war and their real stories. I mean, it's not Hollywood. It's not made up. It's them telling us what they went through. And then through the amazing uh, ability of television, we were able to go into government archives and pull some of the footage out from some of those battles that they were talking about. Mm. We brought those stories back. Uh, emotional, tough yeah. to watch sometimes, but real. And, you know, a pheasant hunt allowed us to share their story and Sam's story and what he's doing today. It's pretty remarkable. It, it really is. In our uh, our last episode of On the Wing podcast was was with David Gutierrez, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's regional representative for the Southwest. And that entire focus on that episode was how David had returned from Afghanistan in 
had a struggle to find his place in the world again mm-hmm. um, until he found the uplands. Mm-hmm. So it's just, you know, it goes, it's a, you know, this particular episode that we're talking about here is another example of, yeah, we talk about hunting, we talk about habitat, but there's also, and I, I don't say this lightly, there's a spiritual component to what what we both do for a living here, the, the connection between upland habitat, bird dogs, hunting, and just finding peace in this world. And that episode number one of The Flush this year is a great example of, uh, of uh, illustrating that through folks that have been um, through pretty traumatic experiences. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll jump to episode number. So, so these episodes that aired already to start July, they'll air again yep. uh, the beginning of October, right? As we start fourth quarter. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell the listeners real quickly, the networks, most television networks run this way, but they'll do uh, by quarter. So 13 week periods and so production companies like ours we produce a season of shows and so the outdoor channel in particular runs our season which is 13 continuous weeks then they rerun that again another 13 continuous weeks so essentially we have 26 weeks of television on the outdoor channel Um, you know if you miss an episode uh, you can DVR it Uh, there's there's now different streaming uh, Mm. ways that you can get it like I, I was just told about it's called friendly TV if you don't have uh, direct TV and get the outdoor channel package. You can do this thing called friendly TV. And it's, I think five bucks a month hmm. and add all these different networks. Uh, the outdoor channel is one of them. So that's an, a way to, uh, get, uh, outdoor channel without having to, you know, break the bank on a big television. And, and then also once our season is done, uh, in January, we can then post or we can then stream our episodes in their entirety online. So we, we do stream them on our YouTube channel and on Amazon Prime as well. Yeah. So all episodes from 2020, if you missed anything, they're all on YouTube. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you're, if you're starting to get the hunger like I am for, uh, for Upland bird hunting season, you can binge. Plus, you can you can watch all the shows we've done together, Bob. <laughs> there have been a few of them. They're yeah. always a good time. Well, yep. I, it, so that leads me to episode number two because it's the episode I wish I was able to have joined. Because <laughs> um, I, I, I mentioned it in some other episodes. I am binge reading both the CJ Box Joe Pickett mystery series about a game warden based in Wyoming. And I'm binge reading Craig Johnson's Longmire series about a police sheriff based in Wyoming. So every all signs point to I got to get to Wyoming. And episode two was a Wyoming slam of blues, roughs, sage, and sharpies. And I... Travis, I got to figure out how to get to Wyoming. <laughs> I, all you have to do is say, call me and say, we're going to Wyoming and I will take you. I will take you ex- back where I, because I'm looking for any reason to get back there too. And you and I have talked about this plenty of times over the last couple of years. I think Wyoming is one of the most underrated upland bird hunting states in America. It's mm-hmm. just the amount of public land, the amount of species of birds that you can hunt out there is just, I mean, you can... Mm. You know, Scott did this particular episode, but he went because he saw the one that I went on and he goes, I wanted on some of that too. And he has a buddy that lives out there and he wanted to do the, the grouse angle of it. And I don't blame him. And it's beautiful country, amazing country. And it's one of those places where you can just go, you know, and we talk about this all the time. We live in Minnesota, you and I, Bob, we're not far apart. And we don't have access to gigantic pieces mm-hmm. of public property. A 640 acre chunk is huge for us out there. It's 640,000 acres, you know? And so it's different and it's, it's a, uh, it's nice to be able to go to a place where you can make mistakes and learn and mm-hmm. figure it out and uh, spend some time and just go and go and go. And for me, that's what really excites me as a hunter is I love the ability to go on my own find something learn and then if if i'm successful then that's really kind of the ultimate you know 
climax of the hunt. So when I think about Wyoming, I think about the variety. Mm-hmm. But I also know like when you try to do it all, you don't really do anything really well. Yep. Um, would you say to focus on like sage for sage grouse or go up the mountain for some of the mountain grouse? Or, or would you say, no, just go and do it all. Learn your first trip, like just experience the variety and and figure out from there. Yeah, I would say, and I've learned this on a lot of my adventures over the years, but I would say for this particular one in Wyoming, I would I would tell you in advance and anybody listening that when you go one time, just know that you're going to want to go back because of the, again, because of just the opportunity. So the first time you go, you're right. If you try to do everything, you're going to do everything poorly. Mm. Um, but you're going to kind of dip your toes in a little bit and say, Oh, I learned something here. I learned something there. Typically when I go on a shoot, the first day is really for me, I'm taking it all in and we go with, a, you know, we go a lot of pheasants forever biologists and farm, you know, farm biologists and reps and stuff like that. So we've got people that we're doing stories with that know a lot. They're already on the ground, but there's times where I go with, you know, a buddy, George Lyle, let's hop in the truck and go. And we're both learning for the first time. And we agree that the first day is a really, let's, let's make mental notes here. And then after that, we're, we're going to day two and three and four is when we're really successful. Um, but you know, for those birds, if you want to spend a lot of time, um, you're, you're really going to learn a lot over that time. I would say, give yourself an extra two days on your trip if you're planning something that is a once in a lifetime, just trust me, do one or two extra days longer than you think, because those last few days are really going to allow you to learn hmm. and to understand the habitat. You might go six hours without anything the first day. And then once you start to put pieces together, you know, I learned this hunting um, Hungarian partridge up in the mountains in Idaho too. I just, I just, put it together about five hours into it. And I told the guys that I was with, I'm like, hold on a second, you guys, I'm noticing this pattern and it's, uh, it's spot on every time we get to this. So now we can eliminate all this dead walking zone and just go. And you know, there's these rims, there's where they're sitting on this flat right near the edge. We don't need to walk any valleys. We can just go boom to these, uh, these flats on the tops of the mountains. And that's where every covey is located. Mm. So uh, when it comes to, you know, coming up with your own game plan, Bob, when you go to Wyoming, I'm going to be there so we can talk through this. But, uh, <laughs> but if, if I'm not, I think, you know, give yourself two days for each bird mm. because your second day is where you're going to really be successful. Most likely mm. um, you could, you could fall into birds right off the bat on the first walk of the first day. Uh, the sage flats for sage grouse are massive. Mm. It depends on the time of the season and the moisture. That's huge, obviously, for all upland birds. But right. sage flats, you know, they, sometimes there's that obvious little bit lower, a little bit more greenery, more more bugs. That's where birds are going to be. But there becomes a time of the year when they actually abandon those areas, too. So then you're you're looking at 20 square miles of sage around you and you got to try to pick that apart so here's a curveball question for you when i think about when i think about you i knew you first as a fisherman as an angler right and you're you're one of if not the premier muskie guides in the entire state of minnesota and but i i i mentally put you in the the fishing basket first and then I know you've hunted your whole life, but mm-hmm. like I identify you first as a fisherman. And I think about how how effectively you figure out patterns. And I always relate that right or wrong. And here's where the questions come in. <laughs> yeah. uh, I always relate that to your strength as an angler. Like if, since, you know, for, for decades and decades and decades, Anglers have talked about patterns, what the fish are doing right now. And it it feels to me like fish, you can more generalize into a pattern than you can wildlife. But um, you can always figure out a pattern with wildlife. It's just 
I always relate your strength as an angler to your ability to figure out patterns in birds. Do you think that's like, is that come from fishing or is it, am I underappreciating that hunters, just not me, have been doing that for decades and decades and decades. And I'm just a little slower to the game to figure out patterns um, from a hunting perspective. I don't, I, I guess, well, I appreciate the, all the compliments, Bob. It really means a lot to me. Um, I would say though, for my person, the way my brain works is really strange um, <laughs> in that details. I just soak in all the details hmm. and whether it's a fish or a bird, to me, it's the same. I, most wild animals never do anything on accident They're whether it's a fish or not or a bird or a deer or a, you know it, it doesn't matter they're trying to survive mm -hmm. and their their life revolves around food cover water <clears throat> and so they're never going to be in a place on accident is what i've learned so if i'm not paying attention to those details I'm going to miss so many opportunities. When I when I find a muskie in an area on a new lake that I've never been, I look at it, I dissect, why is it there? There's a reason that fish is there. Same with walleyes, same with bass. They're out there because there's food, there's mm -hmm. there's cover, there's everything that fish needs. When I'm out in a in a place hunting for wild birds, you look at it and you say, Okay, there was a bird there. Why was that mm -hmm. bird there? Look around. Then you look at the bigger picture and you can quickly say, that looks the same. This looks the same. That, you know, there's that same patch of berries, you know, up on that ridge. There's most likely going to be some birds there too. And you can easily put patterns together that way. Um, they're creatures of habit. Most birds are creatures of habit too. So if you understand, you know, what's interesting, like out on the Fort Pier grassland, mm -hmm. right? So a sharp-tailed grouse will walk where it wants to go. A prairie chicken will fly. Mm. So if you have the patience to just sit and mm. relax, enjoy a cup of coffee in the morning, you might find that covey of birds flying from a grain field out into the middle of this grassland, and there's going to give away their location. <laughs> it's different than a sharp-tailed grouse, sure, though. Sharp-tailed sure. grouse, they will fly, but usually when they're flushed, Whereas it's natural for a prairie chicken. So these are things that my brain takes in. Now, if you ask my wife, why can't I, why can't my, why doesn't my brain uh, have room for some of the other important things in this world that I do not understand, but I am extremely observant in the outdoor world, wherever I am, if I'm on the water or in the woods, and I'm trying to understand why hmm. something is doing what it's doing so I can I can outsmart it myself. And that's <laughs> that's really insightful, I think, because it. I reflect on that, and yeah, I think your brain works a lot like a biologist works. You know, trying to figure out, you know, answering the question of why. And historically, like my roots in the outdoors, fishing and hunting, was all about escapism, like just going to relax, go to fish. Yeah, I wanted to catch fish, but I was mentally taking a break from the world. And the same thing with hunting. I was like, yeah, I want to go spend some time in nature and just be away. Mm -hmm. And for me, things started changing for a couple of reasons. Like I got a dog and then you, the dog is probably the biggest changer, change agent for how I thought when I'm hunting because you start paying attention to all the signs related to the dog and the dog is opening up just mentally opening up the questions that you're naturally already thinking about. The other thing, honestly, that changed my thought process is starting to do KFAN 12 years ago. You know, I, and I can remember like, I, again, fishing for me was just purely escapism. And I can remember the host of the show, Billy Hildebrand, very, yeah. very, the captain very early on. He's like, uh, so I saw you caught a limit of crappies. What, what was the pattern that they were on? <laughs> and I was like, what was the pattern? I was using a white jig and a, a pink jig and a white a twister tail. What are you yeah. talking about? And he was even using vernacular that I wasn't really comfortable with. And it started to get me thinking about, 
okay, if I'm going to talk about fishing, it, it just can't all be about escapism. And that's important mm -hmm. still, right? But it is, yeah. it's a different kind of thinking about hunting and fishing and wildlife than I was used to where, and I still think there's a lot of, awful lot of people that, you know, they come to the outdoors just to relieve the tension. Yeah. I struggle. I mean, I understand what you're saying. I struggle with the ability to do that. And my wife has, we've talked about this before and she'll say, you know, sometimes I, I wouldn't mind just going to a fishing pier and, and sitting and relaxing and casting off the dock. And I tell her, I'm like, honey, no, it's, <laughs> it's July right now. If you wanted to catch something off of that pier, you had to be there in April and May when they were up in the shallows because they come in after the ice goes out and then they're feeding on bugs in the mud. And, and now it's all grown up. You're not going to catch anything. And she looks at me, she's like, you just can't turn it off. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And I can't. And I, and that's my problem. When I go out, when I go out in the field too, I don't just go for a walk. I'm studying the habitat. I'm looking at everything and I'm saying, Oh my gosh, why are we here? There's nothing here. You guys, trust me, there is not going to be anything here. I, we have to go over there and that's a mile and a quarter away. So I'm sorry, but I can't, I can't keep walking aimlessly. I'm telling you guys, we need to go there for success. And I don't, have the ability to turn it off, Bob. Well, it, it's it's super interesting because I draw another parallel to baseball. And you think mm. about the kid that's playing right field and picking dandelions, right? Versus yep. the, the center fielder who is, okay, I got a left-handed batter. I'm going to slide to the pole side, right? To the left field a little bit. Yep. Oh, it's a, you know, an 0-2 count fastball coming. I'm going to slide a little bit more to there. So, you know, it, it I'm wired and historically always wired since a kid on from a baseball perspective, like playing the what ifs, asking mm -hmm. the whys. But and so I was thinking about those things growing up playing baseball. And I think a lot of folks playing sports, you know, think about those, you know, sequences as well. Hunting and fishing, like, it is such a, quote unquote pastime, right? It's a relaxation for a lot. And then when you evolve into like, okay, how do I generate, if you want to, how do I generate more success? Then you start thinking about, okay, it's a curveball coming, you know? You know so yeah. it's, I don't know, it's just, it's just really interesting to think about the perspective and evolution of, of the mental side of, of, uh, of bird hunting. Yeah. And I, I find myself attracted to hunting with people that really want to understand things too. And so when we're out in the field, I can tell right away if somebody's mind is thinking the same way mm. and they're, they're analyzing it, they're looking at it and they're saying, all right, I noticed this and this. And I'll say, yep. And did you see this? You know, like this is just a little bit different colored grass and mm -hmm. it's not much, but Every time they've gotten up, they've they've been in this, and maybe it's cheat grass, or maybe it's uh, clovers, or something, depending on the bird and the in the location and where we're at in the country. But there's always a pattern. There's always a reason they are where they are, mm -hmm. and sometimes it's different times of the day. But as soon as you start paying attention to those things, you become a really successful hunter. And it's quick. interesting because I'm paying attention and I'm observing. But I'm looking at the cranes flying over. <laughs> oh, Bob, don't tell yourself too short. I've hunted with you enough to know you're well, pretty damn observant. I, I, you're pretty good. I've evolved. It's been yeah. It's you're been a good hunter. Kidding. Yep, you're a good hunter. All right, let's let's talk about this week's episode. And you sure. you open the door um, talking about Fort Pier and mm -hmm. uh, prairie chickens and sharpies, and that's what that's what's on the the uh, menu for this week. It's a Fort Pier National Grasslands, one of my absolute favorite places in the world, both to hunt and to take a brain breather because yeah. it's, it's beautiful. Um, tell us about this week's episode because that had uh, high drama. 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 Yeah, that's the first word that comes to mind, drama. And I think, you know, Bob, over the years, we've always tried to be real on this show. We're hunting a lot of public lands, wild birds. And the reality is sometimes it doesn't go great. Sometimes things happen and we try to show that. Um, <clears throat> last year, for instance, we were on an island out in the middle of Lake Sakakawea, North Dakota, and one of the dogs had a, a seizure hmm. and we rolled on it. We showed what happened. And fortunately that dog ended up, you know, coming out. Okay. In Fort Pier, 
we were camping out there in the middle of nowhere on the prairie. Beautiful. We watched some birds fly. Josh Bathke was the guy that he's hunted there for over 10 years. Um, and we're, he's kind of telling us, you know, this is where we will start and we'll go this way and blah, blah, blah. We made it 30 minutes into the hunt and a rattlesnake came flying up and struck one of the dogs. Mm. And at that moment, everything changes everything mm. and again our cameras were rolling so we captured the the terror essentially of a rattlesnake flying out of the grass and, and taking it and hitting the dog struck his dog right in the nose and this is where kind of the um you know josh and i actually that night or maybe it was the next day either way we recorded a podcast for the flush out there on the prairie uh because he was really shooken up uh Every dog guy that I know that hunts in those locations, a lot of them have vaccinated their dogs. Some haven't, but either way, they're most likely going to have Benadryl with. Mm -hmm. And so he gave that dog Benadryl right away. We went straight back to camp, called the vet, got the dog into the vet. The vet said, no, do not give this dog Benadryl. <clears throat> she pumped the dog's stomach, mm. uh, kept, him, kept her overnight. And he was shooken up, especially because of the, the uh, snake attack was a dog going to make it. But also the fact that could he have potentially done something to his dog? Because like like you and I, and I, that's one of his kids, too. Yeah. You know, and so he's just scared. Is my dog going to make it? Did I cause damage to the dog by giving Benadryl? And so um, that that opened up a big topic of conversation. I've talked to several vets since then that have all reached out and said, we, we recommend giving Benadryl. You know, you got to understand the amount that you want to give your dog hmm. when that happens. Uh, so be prepared in that way. But um, I think it, it, it leads to what, what is the right thing to do? And sometimes we, I think we want to know, but we get varying opinions on it. And who do we trust? What do we want to do in that situation? Fortunately, that dog was okay. The hunt turned out, um, kind of what uh my cameraman for instance he was pretty nervous mm -hmm. because he was got a, a headset on he's listening to us talk he's worrying about color uh audio microphones that we're wearing getting the shot and to think that he could step on a rattlesnake mm. in the back of his mind that changes everything and for me as well it changed uh, it changed the dynamic of the hunt entirely uh fortunately we ended up finding just an unbelievable amount of birds the moisture was great out there. There were more insects than I've ever seen in any other location on any other hunt that I've filmed. Um, and the birds were there as a result of it too. So uh, that ends up being just a, a real dramatic episode uh, of the realities that can happen anytime we walk into the field in those kind of places. It's really, it, it is interesting um, when you think about rattlesnakes in talking with veterinarians about rattlesnakes and preventative measures, you, you really do get almost soup to nuts recommendations based on who you're talking about. You know, some believe in the vaccinations, some don't. Some say, you know, a really small um, species of Western diamondbacks that it, it works on. And then, you know, you bring in the, the Benadryl, how much do you give? Do you give it at all? You know, here you have a vet that's pump on the stomach from Benadryl. Yeah. Um, so neither one of us is a veterinarian, so we're not going to give any advice mm -hmm. other than the best advice. And you, and you had this is know where the closest vet is and get that dog into the expert's hands as quickly as possible. Because mm -hmm. even, even veterinarians that endorse uh, rattlesnake, rattlesnake vaccination, will say even if they've gotten vaccinated, you got to get that pup to a vet as yep. soon as possible. So no matter where you're going, but particularly if in, you're in rattlesnake country, know where the closest veterinarian is. So mm -hmm. um, it's a very good um, scenario that that pup came out of. You said that the snake sort of jumped out. And um, do you think this the dog was agitating the snake or was it more just happenstance came across and, and got zinged? 
I, you know, that dog was on, on the scent of a bird and he was, mm. you know, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And all of a sudden it, it's hard to tell. I've watched that video back several times and it's kind of a wide shot, but you just see the dog fly up mm. after getting hit. And I don't know if the dog went down necessarily. It was about a six footer mm. good size snake, uh, which is actually a blessing because mm. uh, a smaller snake, as I've learned, has a will pack more venom hmm. into that into that bite where or how they release it i guess i should say is different than how um a larger snake that can control their venom when they strike a uh, smaller one can't and more venom goes in it can be more dangerous to the dog so i mean fortunately it where it got struck in the face versus in the body uh made a difference in the fact that it was a large snake as well hmm. but i mean <laughs> talk about just an unnerving feeling right. you, you you know and and the i struggle with hearing loss that has happened over my my lifetime and so in my the back of my mind i couldn't take a step without thinking about it i i'm looking mm -hmm. down i'm nervous that i'm not going to hear a the rattle it's it's too subtle the frequencies of a rattle in my head my ears aren't going to pick up so I cranked up my hearing aids walking mm. through the field. Uh, I took out any other hearing protection and cranked up my hearing aids, which why would you want to do that? But I did because I was so nervous about it. And I even had snake gators on. Mm. Um, but that, I mean, I don't know. I, I Part of me says I'm glad that I experienced that hunt. The other part of me says that I won't go back until December when it's frozen mm. and the snakes are all gone. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and our cameramen are a little shooken up by the idea of going into a, a hot location like that again, where that, mm. that reality does exist. So um, it's, it's something that we're thinking about, I guess, a little bit. Uh, but everybody did come out of it okay. Uh, I do hope that people enjoy that episode. It's a, it's a, as you said, it's a wonderful, wonderful mm -hmm. place. Josh, the guy that we hunted with, uh, has this cool uh, camping setup, and uh, I encourage you to watch the episode to find out what he he calls it the manbulance. We'll just call it that <laughs> way. And, and we did a we did a cribs, an MTV cribs version of it on the, on the show, so you can see what he's done to it. It's pretty cool. Uh, and then again. We, the camping aspect changes uh, a hunt for me. And I've really learned that this season in particular, because you're out there, you don't leave that location. When you're out on the lake fishing and you catch walleyes and you have a walleye shore lens, there's probably no better way to enjoy freshly caught fish than a shore lunch out on an island somewhere. Well, it's the same thing with upland birds. When you harvest your birds out in the field and you're, you know, you put the miles on and you can sit there and, and you cook them up out there on the prairie. Oh man. So we've incorporated that into the season a lot. And that's something that I want to do a lot more of. Uh, my ice castle fish house has become a, a base camp for people that don't live in Minnesota and Wisconsin that under, are the northern parts of the, the Midwest. They don't know necessarily what an ice castle fish house is, but it's like a camper that has holes in the floor. And it's hydraulics <laughs> that drop down. So that became my base camp bird camp yeah. uh, last season. And it has all the amenities of home. I've got a stove and beds in there in the bathroom um but it's really changed the the joy of hunting out on those on those wild places I, i'm thinking of a frequent listener in south carolina who's hearing you talk about you know oh it's you know it's a trailer with holes in the floor you know? <laughs> right exactly yeah, i tell people around the country we went out to the black hills of the family trip this spring and i had like five different couples walk up and say what is it? <laughs> what is it? It's like, well, come on inside. It's best to just show you. And they're like, you can fish through the floor. I was like, absolutely, absolutely. You fish while you're sleeping. Well, so that's that's a theme that as as folks watch, um, the, watch the flush throughout the entirety of the season. It is the camping under COVID fall of uh, of 2020 that hits the air in 2021 you, you talked about camping in an ambulance in ambulance on yep. four pure grasslands you camped in the badlands you camped in montana um yep. camping is a quintessential part of this season and as you mentioned there's um 
there's some really unique components about uh, about about that part of it is the food. Yeah. I assume also you saw a heck of a lot more sunrises, um, and we're in the field earlier than than ever before, right? Oh gosh, it was beautiful. I mean, we're out in the Badlands, and I remember uh, waking up in the morning and walking out and stretching, and I look over my shoulder, and there are eight, ten antelope just kind of looking at me. What are you doing this morning? Mm. The next day there were, uh, you know, a whole herd of cows came in. <laughs> so that was interesting. <laughs> and I remember one time I got up at like two 30 in the morning. It was a full moon. We were, I remember, I, th- I think this one was in North Dakota. It might've been Montana, but anyway, I walked out to go to the bathroom and this dark and all the stars and, and it was beautiful. And I'm like, I feel like something is watching me like something. And I'm looking around and I, I went to the bathroom and I turned to go back in the door and right above the door, which is six inches of the the ceiling starts like six inches above the top of the door. A giant owl just goes (laughs) and it flew and just sailed right over my head. And I, you know, I mean, it's quiet out there. And I I don't know if it was a high pitched squeal that I made, but it was close, you know, in the dark, you get out and I'm, ah, but just, yeah, the places out there—it's mm. just a—it's an escape from reality for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And I, my reality is that we're trying to document television while we're out there. But I could imagine going back there on my own without camera and a couple buddies, and just saying, "Guys, this is about as good of bird hunting as it gets." You grab the shotgun, you don't get it in your truck for a couple of days mm-hmm. if you don't want to, and you can just walk mm-hmm. and you can go and you can experience some pretty incredible places yeah i think about it It makes everything well not everything but most things easier right there's no travel you know Mm -hmm. boom you wake up you get dressed and you go um you know the same thing at the end of the day you know you feed the dogs you know you relax you're eating quicker Mm -hmm. you talked about everything tastes better around a campfire Mm -hmm. the downside is it's pretty much just related to the bathroom right I mean, like, yeah, there you go. You might have an owl sore over here when you're going. (laughs) You know, number one, number two, and a shower. That's all you really are missing, right? Okay, so I we have a solution for that. And my buddy George Lyle, when he came with to the Badlands, he goes, "I am bringing a shower." And I go, "You're kidding me!" So he's got a grouse camp up in Wisconsin, and they have this shower that runs off of battery. And he brought it with. He it's a Mister Heater type setup, and we took showers out in the middle of the Badlands last year. <laughs> and so we had it all. We had it all. And and my fish house does have a bathroom in it. So we we did have it all. And I would say, too, most of the time, some of the best places to go up when bird hunting are far away from people. Mm-hmm. We all know that. The further you get from people in towns, well, yeah, when you're done hunting, a lot of times you have a half hour, hour, hour and a half drive back to the hotel or to, to the lodge. And this way you don't have that at all and so when you're done you walk back and everyone if you want to crack a cold one you're there you're you're responsible now you don't have to worry about the drive and yeah you sit back on the chair and you take it all in uh i will say though that in montana it wasn't as a joy uh the, the camping experience wasn't as great because we had sustained 40 plus mile an hour winds mm. for three days mm. and it got to the point where uh there was so much dust and we know how dry it was mm-hmm. last fall so i i feel like and i'm and i'm not saying this lightly but i feel like we we experienced a dust bowl out there because you couldn't take a step without your footprint impacting the the dust on top the topsoil and then blowing around so your eyes were always constantly mm-hmm. full of dust our camp our camp chef uh, set up the kitchen that I made out in front of the camper was had like a quarter inch thick layer of dust on it, which made cooking just miserable. So mm-hmm. you do have that reality that happens once in a while. Uh, I would, I would go back in a second and try it again though, to see if I could do better <laughs> <laughs> or mother nature could treat us a little better. <laughs> will, will camping be a theme as you start to film, uh, fall 2021 episodes for me it will yeah and i even remember you know we when we're editing a a couple of times the editors came over and they're like hey i'm i'm want you to see this cooking setup that you put together that we put together and they're like 
I would. That was the best bird I have ever eaten mm. in my life. I would go. Back. Are we going to do that again this year? And it gets my wheels spinning as to what I want to do for this season and where I want to go. Best meal last year during during filming of the flush. What do you remember? There's a thing in North Dakota called Coogan. It's a mix between pie and uh, Danish, I think. I don't know, but they only make it in small town North Dakota. And our cameraman, Aaron Ochtenberg, is from North Dakota, and he brought it to camp. So he brought a couple of these. It's basically like a pie. And that to me is, of all the things that I ate out there, it was just, you know, some lady makes it and she sells it at local grocery stores and it's got her name on it. And it was incredible. So I had that with breakfast, a cup of coffee. It was as good as it gets. But as far as the the uh, wild birds, I don't think I have a favorite because we made pheasant, we made sharp-tailed grouse, we made Hungarian partridge. We made them several different ways. At one point... Uh, in one of the shows, we we harvested a bunch of sharp-tailed grouse out in the Badlands, and they were they were mostly concentrated in these berry bushes. Mm. So we actually the buffalo berries we uh, we picked a bunch, and then we made kind of um, uh, like a a, pat, a sauce with it. Mm. Uh, put some the the other guy that was with us. He had a bunch of honey from his bees, so he brought the honey, and we put that with the berries, and it turned into the sauce. And so you've got the bird that you just harvested out of the the same berry patch, and so that was that was spectacular. Mm. Um, uh, Marissa Jensen's uh, peach chutney. Oh, sure. I believe it's called. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that made it that made uh, its television debut. Ben <laughs> Ben Bredigan is one of my high school buddies, and we we're out in Montana. And and I tell people when we do these type of adventures out in the field, they go bring your favorite recipe so we can try it. Everyone bring a recipe. So every night somebody cooks something different, and he did that one, and it was oh my goodness, I. I give it uh, a ten out of ten. <laughs> well, Mar- it was phenomenal. That's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and the season ends. Um, well, uh, episode thirteen, so it'll air twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to particularly thank you and Scott for making this particular episode happen. Um, as folks, listeners know, COVID was a strain on businesses far and wide and in particularly conservation organizations like ours who who couldn't hold banquets um you know for the better part of a year and a half so we had to be creative with how we raised money to to keep our habitat mission mission moving forward and one of the ways was online fundraising sweepstakes and in auctions and um travis and scott and the crew at the flush um, we're right there at the beginning saying, how can we help? And one of the ways they helped was putting an episode, well, putting a hunt together with our biologist that was featured as an episode of The Flush. And the, the hunt for the 2020 season, which will air here in 2021, was a, was a pretty special South Dakota trip with our biologist that um, generated thousands of dollars for our habitat mission, and uh, it, it, a pretty special family bought that hunt. Tell us a little bit about the results of that uh, tr- that trip. Well, kudos to your staff for setting it up because they they connected with some amazing landowners out in South Dakota, and it was a road trip. It was a late season road trip that we were going to film with the family that or with with whoever bid on this on this hunt on your online auction so hunter schwinn uh he he purchased the trip highest bidder and so we met him out in south dakota on this wonderful amazing piece of property and it was just a kickoff of four days of um flushing more wild pheasants (laughs) than you could ever possibly imagine when you think of those epic flushes that's what our whole trip was. And it actually got to the point where um, we only aired two days of that hunt because there was so huh. many birds. You couldn't fit more birds in without retaking <laughs> other birds out. But the family, Hunter, and his it, he brought his dad and his two brothers, and they were just as good as they get. And it was just a real 
real fun time. We had a mix of different dogs and birds, pheasants. I think it was the most birdiest hunt we may ever put on on TV. And again, we hunted on land that uh, your members said, yep, come on out. I want to show you what we've got going here, what we've built. And this was farmland that they've also got habitat that they planted in. Never once a planted bird ever hmm. onto their property, all wild, 100%. Uh, and it was just unbelievable. And so we went from one part of South Dakota to the next each day, going to a different location. And each location just just kept on pumping up the, <laughs> the pheasants. It was so good. Uh, talk about, you know, my young bird dog. That was that that week in South Dakota, I don't know how many hundreds of birds she came across, but the points got better and better and better. Mm. And just you can't put a value on a dog experiencing wild birds like that in the repetition and just more and more and more. So I thank you, Bob, for making that happen oh, for well, my dog because she grew about a year and a half in three days. I can't take any credit for that one. We'll give the credit to Matt Morlock and her. South Dakota Farm Bill biologist team who stepped up and said, yeah, we'll, we'll put this hunt together, put it on auction, and we'll raise funds for the organization in partnership with the Flush. And, and also kudos to our North Dakota team, Rachel Bush, Emily Spoliar, Renee Tamala, um, yeah. Austin Lang. We, we got a great team in North Dakota and they have put a hunt um, that was the second auction. It will be filmed as part of the 2022 season. We're bringing the band back together, Bob. We're doing it again. We're so, doing it again. And you would guess who bid on it. <laughs> oh, I My buddy Hunter. Oh, I didn't know yes. that. Did they win? Yes, they did. Oh, okay. They did. The, the bidding got hot again this year. And it was... I remember you texted me that it's going wild and I checked in and it, in the last hour, every time you refresh the page, the numbers kept going. So uh, they raised, I mean, thank you to them. And I'm not sure who they were bidding against. I have no idea, but I, I watched afterwards and they raised a, an astronomical amount of money for that. So a uh, very big thank you to them for yeah, their generosity. I, because honestly, I didn't. I didn't even realize that they had bid it um, and won the, the hunt again. That's great. Did, Thank yeah. you to the Schwinn family. Right. Yeah, I'm excited for this year. We're going to do it again. And I can see this being something that's uh, that's a regular thing for us. And I would say, Bob, too, um, if you're okay with it, we talk about this pretty openly in that we like to tell stories with people that are just like you and me that are hunters that, um, you know, they love to go on adventures. They've got great, unique stories to tell places that we haven't been. So I always open it up. If you have an idea that you think would make a great television show, let me know. Yeah, please let me know. Cause we're planning now in the coming weeks for this coming season. And we want to have a, a nice variety last year with COVID. We were pretty restricted. We tried to say it, you know, we camped a lot. Mm -hmm. We didn't travel. We didn't fly. We didn't do a lot of the things that we would normally have done. We didn't cross the border into Canada, obviously. We didn't go to a lot of the places. You know, I had visions of going to California, Alabama, some of those locations. And we we really were more Midwest heavy, Montana, Kansas, Dakotas, Minnesota, you know. But I will say it was Again, it was one of our birdiest seasons. The, the numbers were fantastic. Mm. You've talked about it a lot. Um, and I'm, I'm really hopeful for, for this season too. But the ideas, the stories, please send them over because I, I look at every one of them. And then we have meetings and we talk about you know what makes sense as we plan from September through January, February even, um, with our travel schedule to try to fit a, as many locations into a season as possible. Uh, that's a great call out and let's give everybody all the places they can find you because you're, you're on all the channels. Uh, well, try, yeah, try to be. <laughs> yeah. So on Instagram and Facebook, you just search for the flush TV. Yep. And if you send a message, we do have a social media director. She will make sure that I get that information. Otherwise you can just go to on, you know, search online at uh, www.theflush.tv. So if you just search for The Flush TV, you're going to find us wherever you're searching and you can send a message and I will get it. I will see it. 
uh, try to get back to you right away. If I'm out of town, it might be a day or two or a week or two, but we will, we will get it and we'll, we'll go through it. And typically what I respond to everybody, I say, if you have the best three days, what would that look like? Mm. When, when would you do it? When would be the best time to go there? And, um, who are we going to go with? Tell me a little bit about yourself. Those are questions that I always ask so that we get an idea. And sometimes we might have 20 options for Montana and we just, we'll pick one for the year. And I keep the, keep it in the folder for next year and we'll see what happens. But, uh, love the ideas, uh, keep them coming. And as we, as we wrap up this episode and you think about the fall ahead, Mm -hmm. what's Mm -hmm. the, uh, What's the hunt that we're going to see during the 2022 season that you're most excited about and it's already on your calendar? I think it's it's unknown yet, Bob. Mm-hmm. It really is. There's two ptarmigan hunts that I'm juggling and trying to figure out what makes the most sense. One of them being pretty extreme in the elevation, mm-hmm. and it, it's really going to depend on our – I go back to – this is, this is my job. The cameramen that work here, that's their job. I love it. They may not love lugging 35 pounds of camera batteries and and gear on top of their shoulders at 14,000 feet Mm. in elevation. So we're just working through some of the details there. But I'm really excited about time again. I'm really excited about uh, some birds out west, some potential quail opportunities south, way south. Uh, Bill was talking about a hunt in Florida. Mm. That's something we haven't done yet either. Uh, but there's also been a lot of very good invites for the Northeast, some grouse up there. We we deserve to, or we don't deserve any of this, but we should go visit some of those areas too. Uh, and just really getting back to the variety of birds, because this is a national show and we have uh, we're fortunate that we have a lot of birds and places to hunt all over the country. <clears throat> well, if you uh, add Wyoming to the list, be sure to let me know. <laughs> <laughs> it's always on my wish list. It's always on my wish list. <laughs> um, thank you so much for your time and, and previewing the season, Travis. It's always awesome to talk with you. And we even got to squeeze in some fishing conversation. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, I I can speak for everybody here at our company. We appreciate being able to work hand in hand with everyone at pheasants forever and quail forever and we we have the same passion that you guys do and we love to be able to share stories we try our best it's real and um we we try to show that and we hope to continue doing it as long as possible so thank you to everybody for watching and partaking and and keeping the upland family connected as well as you have and uh um again listeners and and everybody um um, our best to Scott and loss of Hank. Yep. All right, folks, the flush airs on outdoor channel Mon- and these are Eastern time zones. Mondays at 10 30 AM Wednesdays at 6 30 AM Friday nights, 5 30 PM and Saturday mornings, 8 30 AM. Start your weekend off Saturdays, 8 30 Eastern, 7 30 central. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast with host of The Flush, Travis Frank. For Bob St. Pierre, reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening.